You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace. And you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option to just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash? The reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term, whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor, whether that's sell part of it or some of it, essentially just have as many choices as you want. But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the, the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. All right, everybody, uh, we are back with episode 315 and we are starting a new mini series uh, called Exit Options. We have a bunch of really fun interviews coming up after this one, but we're going to set the stage uh, and it's going to be me and uh, my, I don't even know what to call you, Scott, whether it's my sidekick. I was thinking about like, you know, Robin and Batman and Robin. I don't know, but I'm going to give a big shout out to Scott, who's on the on the horn right now with me. He is uh, our marketing coordinator and has taken the podcast production that I've been doing over the last six and a half years and made it a lot better and made my life easier. So Scott, uh, how's it going? And you're going to be asking some clarifying questions so that way I don't have to talk to myself for 30 minutes or whatever we're going to be doing this for. Yeah. Uh, hey, Ryan. Uh, honestly, after the last couple of years working on the podcast, I never thought I'd actually be on the show. But here we are, Batman <laughs> and Robin. <laughs> there we go. So uh, Scott's going to be just kind of hanging out in the in the background, and then he's going to be kind of making sure that I'm steering the ship in the right direction. Because what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be diving into exit options, and I'm going to be pulling stuff from the intentional growth training, so that way we can set the stage for these next uh, handful of interviews in a in a fun way. So that way we we can get right into the meat and potatoes of each of these interviews that I'm going to have. So before I jump into this episode and the f five different exit options and kind of giving an overview of those, 
uh, um, interviews to come. I'm super pumped about. So we have Brent Bishore from Permanent Equity, who's going to be talking about private equity and his unique structure. We have Tommy Mello, who is uh, uh, going to be speaking about strategic buyers, and he has been rolling up these garage door companies across the country, and is just one one heck of a character, and, and it's got a lot of cool stuff to be talking about. We also have Walker Diable, who wrote the book Buy Then Build, who's going to be talking about search funds and acquisition entrepreneurs and how they're going about uh uh, buying companies. And then we have uh, a woman named Rachel who is in a family business, a very large family business and how they went through their transitions. Um, so lots of fun stuff to come, but I wanted to set the stage of what do we mean by exit options and why do they matter? And to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share my screen. So the people that are listening in, I'm going to make sure that you can listen in and not have to uh, be watching the video, but the people that want to ch check out the YouTube video, I'm going to be sharing just a little bit of stuff. So that way it gives a little bit more color to the things that we're doing so or things that we're talking about so when we talk about principle three of the exit options you know this has been a, an interesting topic for me for this last six and a half years because people think about hey i'm gonna you know exit options i shouldn't think about till the moment that i want to sell we've covered that in the last few uh, mini series where you're running an asset you're you want to view and run your company as a financial asset so therefore if you grow it you're gonna have lots of choices and you know, we want to make sure that we understand the different choices that we have. So that way we can be marching towards something, knowing that we want to create the the options that are available to us versus, you know, waking up one day saying, hey, I'm burnt out and I want out. So before we jump into each of the five exit options, I, I just wanted to note that we have to be viewing these exit options through the lens of principle one and two, which essentially are the mini series that we just went through. What do you want from your business and why is principle one? You know, what are your drivers? What do you want out of the, your lifestyle, your timeline? What do you want out of the impact that you want? How do you want to have fun? Really putting some uh, thought behind that. And then principle two, what are your financial targets? We talked to Pat and I talked about three of them, your annual income, the wealth outside your business. And what is this business worth as an asset? And how do you grow that asset? And now that we've got that kind of uh, that foundation, Remember, we talked about having the, the separation of ownership versus management. So you have a W-2 job that you get paid for doing whatever you're doing. And then you have this asset that you're an owner of where you have equity in it and you want that equity to grow. We have to separate those two because, you know, Scott hears me here that, uh, say this all the time. When people call me and I get these phone calls every week, like, Ryan, I want out. So I'm like, out of what? Your job or this financial asset? And like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, I don't get a lot of phone calls of people going, yeah, I want out of this asset that kicks off a million dollars a year in mailbox money because it's a good asset and obviously it's working. Generally, what people do is that when they call me and they say that comment, I want out, it's because everything's falling on their shoulders. They got to hold all the stress and responsibility of keeping the machine going and it's the job that they're burnt out on and they don't know how to get on top of that uh, cash flow stream and get into that ownership box or the visionary or visionary ownership box as the EOS talks about it. So we need to use this as a lens, not only principle one and two, but then this ownership versus management roles, which now there we go. I switched the slide and this ownership versus management roles. Like I was saying, you can have, you can have equity in a company and not have a job private equity. That's an entire industry. And that's what they do is they buy companies and they place people inside of those companies or they back management. And also you could have a job, but then also not have equity in that business. So we have to think about principle one and two and ownership versus management as we look at the five different exit options. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly just uh, list the five different exit options, and I'm going to. Just, and the the whole point of this episode is again to set the the groundwork so that way we can talk about these with more context as we have these other interviews that are coming up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk over uh, the five different exit options for the people that are listening in. And again, the the purpose of this is I want to give some context behind each of these exit options. And then that'll hopefully make the next ep- the handful of episodes way more impactful because you're going to understand where they fit and the things that you should be thinking of when you're considering whether that's appealing to you down the road or now or whenever the time is right for you. So the first one of the type of exit options is internal, and that is managers, family members, partners. The second exit option is what we call acquisition entrepreneur also known as search funds or entrepreneurship through acquisition. There's a lot of different terminologies going on. Uh, and those are wealthy individuals who wanted to buy a company, you know, corporate refugees as we like to call them. And again, we're gonna dive further into all these uh, in a little bit. The third one is ESOPs, which people hear me talk a lot about, and that is employee stock ownership plans. And that's the employees participating and benefiting from the ownership via an ESOP trust. And then the fourth one is private equity. And those are professional investors that are going out and buying companies for a rate of return. And then the fifth one is strategic buyers. And those are people that want to get into different geographic locations. You know, there's a lot of different reasons a buyer would want to buy you. We did not cover uh, IPOs and initial public offerings because we don't, this is a for, you know, this show and what we're doing is for privately held companies who want to grow value, treat their company as an asset. There's a whole market behind you know, raising money for startups and then going and trying to drive to an IPO, that's different. And, and we're not going to be talking about that right now. And a little bit of backdrop on how Pat and I decided to land on these five different exit options. One is that, you know, there's an almost an infinite amount of ways you could structure your ownership sale and or what you could do with your job. But that doesn't do us any good because we need some sort of framework to understand what our basic choices are. So what Pat and I did. We, we sat down and we said, okay, there's about 17 attributes. And we all this is in the intentional growth training if you, everybody wanted to check it out. But the, there's 17 attributes from you know, your probability of getting your cash up front, high, medium, or low. Your probability of controlling the entire process and the, your degree of control, high, medium, or low. You know, your ability to, the, the uh, reliant on like an earnout or some sort of uh, you know, creative deal structure. There's a lot of different nuances from each of these. And so again, we, we, we categorize these almost like dog, cat, goat. We're trying to say, okay, hey, yes, there's a lot of different variations, but generally this is a dog. And so that's what we're trying to do here. So between the five of them, it's internal, acquisition entrepreneur, ESOP, private equity, and strategic buyer. So each of these, you know, what's unique about each of these is they're going to impact your W-2 role, your management role differently. And they're also going to impact how you monetize the sale of your ownership and the asset and the deal structure. So I just want to, I'm going to just do a quick flyby in each of these. And Scott, feel free to jump in at any point just to make sure that I'm uh, staying in, on track. And then what we're going to do with these other episodes is we're going to dive further into these with the people I mentioned at the beginning of the show, where they're going to describe why they decided to uh, either go the route that they did, or if they're the business buyer, how they structure the deals, what they have as for the purpose of the, uh, the acquisition. So you're going to be able to see it through the buyer's eyes of what that means to them and how you can align what you want with the goals of the buyer and the deal structure. All right. So 
with internal, the first one, and this is a financial sale. So again, what I'm gonna, there's another layer on top of this that's in the in the um, screen share that we have is in, in internal, it's a financial sale most often. And that is the intrinsic financial value of a company based on the risk of the cash flow. If you wanted to go check that out, there's a the podcast that we did a couple of series ago where it's intrinsic financial value. We, we covered that in great detail. But the overall deal structure is based on the risk of the cash flow, and the company has to, the company's cash flow has, has to essentially pay uh, pay back and be able to afford the the purchase price. So these are typically managers, family members, partners, and your degree of uh, or your probability of getting all of the cash up front is very low unless they go and take out an SBA loan or if they've got a bunch of money themselves. A couple of things to note: you know, you've still got to pay your taxes and you still got to fund your growth. So there's a, a math equation, as Dave Deal and I talked about in that one episode, where you have to figure out if this is something that you're interested in, you know, your degree of control is pretty high. You're going to have a pretty good understanding of what the people are going to do with the company afterwards, but your ability to get all your money up front is pretty, pretty low, but you know, or, or what degree of or percentage of the money up front and making sure that you feel confident that you're going to get the money over time, whether it's a promissory note or however the structure is. But again, internal, there's a lot of different uh, type of t- people that it could be. It's based on the risk of the cash flow because it's an intrinsic financial sale. And you've got a, there's a lot of different nuances to think about in your financial targets, whether that's something that's interesting to you or not. The second exit option, as we mentioned, it's acquisition entrepreneurs. And you know, it's so fascinating. I, this entire industry has exploded because a lot of millennials or Gen Xs, I mean, and it's not necessarily age related, but people like, you know, Minnesota, we've got like 19 public companies. Someone that ran the 3M division that's doing 50 million that wants to go out on their own and buy a garage company or buy a, you know, a CPA firm or because they were in finance. I don't know what it, you know, there's a lot of different examples, but it's someone that wants to take over and, you know, essentially not only buy a job, but then to have that financial asset that they can grow by having a job. And uh, that's what we call the corporate refugee. And then these acquisition entrepreneurs with when Walker Diablo comes on, there's these programs going out in these Ivy League schools now teaching people how to buy companies. And so someone you know could come out of Yale and they've got a bunch of student debt. They don't have a pot to piss in for wealth, but they have the skills, uh, hypothetically have the skills to run a business. So what they're doing is there, there's a, this whole market now where these people that are kind of, the, they call it the the horse, right? Because these family offices or wealthy individuals or, or capital is backing the horse. So they're essentially saying, hey, we're, you know, if it was Scott, Scott's going to buy a company. I might have a bunch of money. I'm going to say, all right, Scott, what's your expertise? We're going to give you a, a year or two to go find a company. And then we're going to buy it because we have capital. We're going to have some equity and some debt. And then we believe that Scott's going to be able to grow that asset so he can have some wealth. And then we get a rate of return. So kind of a couple of different flavors of the acquisition entrepreneur. Does, does Typic- an acquisition entre- entrepreneur typically want the owner to stick around for a while? Yeah, g- great question, Scott. No, that, uh, I shouldn't. I, I said that pretty quick, but I would say it, it, it depends. But generally, if someone is going to go in there, it's going to be, hey, you know what? We have a vision for this company and we want to take and we want to take it to our own direction so we can grow wealth between the person that's got the that's going to be the CEO and then the, the money behind them. Generally, there's a different vision. So that's a wonderful point, Scott, because when you think about your principle one that we talk about a lot, what do you want for the future of the business? And what kind of say do you want into it? And like, 
if you really want to put in direction or uh, into a specific direction, the future of the company, it's going to take a lot of dialogue with these people to make sure that they see the company the same way that you do, because you're, you're probably not going to be sticking around a lot. You know, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if you went through a bunch of data and said, okay, well, a certain percentage of those CEO or those owners stick around in some capacity, whether it's an earnout or an employment contract, but it's always tough because if the visions aren't aligned of what to do with the company long-term, you know, there's going to be friction and, you know, like it's hard to, I can't, I can't imagine going and buying a company and having the old, the old guard sit around for a long time and everybody's trying to look and who's, who's running this place. So I think just the, the, the potential for conflict is so high that, and generally people just want to cash out because it's like they're cashing out of their job and the company right, right around the same time that a lot to talk about. And that's why we're going to get into this with the different uh, interviews, but lots to know and to think about based on principle one and two. And we are on to ESOPs and uh, employee stock ownership plans. Um, you, everybody hears me talk about it a lot. We've had Dave Dio from Prairie Capital and plant dozens of people on the show talking about ESOPs. You know, in a in a nutshell, it's a trust, an ESOP trust that ends up buying the company, this buying the shares of the EIN number, and then the employees get a benefit of that uh, employee ownership through the ESOP trust. Once that company, if it's 100% ESOP owned, that, and I think it, the stat is right now that 90% of all conversions into ESOPs, 90% of them are 100% ESOP. So you could do a partial ESOP, but in this example, if you do 100% ESOP, the company no longer pays federal or state income tax. So there's a lot of additional cash flow to service the debt. And so with an ESOP, you can generally get between a third and a half of your money up front from a senior lender like a bank, and then you're going to carry the note afterwards. And it's truly just an ownership transition. So you've monetized the business. It does not change your operations or executive team at all. So if you know if someone calls me up and says, I want out, they're, and if they're referring to their job, an ESOP is not going to be great because nothing changes operationally. It's just a way to monetize the business. So again, the, be the, the benefits of an ESOP over an internal transition is you're not going to be paying any taxes. So it frees up a little bit more cash flow to service that debt, allowing you to grow a little bit more and potentially faster. Again, different pros and cons uh, between all these. And that's why understanding principle one and two is so important about what do you want and what, what is attractive of these to you. Um, I would say that uh, if you wanted to monetize your business, and have a liquidity event, but still enjoyed running the leadership team or being a CEO or whatever, it's a great option to have some financial uh, reward and you know monetizing it while also still participating in the business long term. With an ESOP, so so there's some like good tax opportunities or like good tax breaks with it. But if I'm the owner and I sell my equity in the company, do I still have to pay taxes on that sale price? Great question. It's a it's a stock sale, so it'll be capital gains. Um, so yes, you'll have to pay taxes on that. There's a, a lot of nuances called the 1042, where if it's a C corp, you could actually take that money and put it into stocks uh, that are like a like a like investment, kind of like a 1031 exchange. But you know, there's not a lot of C corps out there, and a lot of people go, "Well, I should turn into a C corp, and then five years later, then I can." You know, it it generally is not worth the conversion to a C corp, and then to do that to avoid the tax on the sale. But the overall net proceeds over the structure of an ESOP, because you get some upfront, you get MES financing rates over the course of the uh, the seller's note, and then some things called warrants, potentially could be higher than any uh, larger purchase price 
because of the net proceed comparison of the deal structures of like a strategic or a private equity sale? Great question though. And so again, we've covered internal, which is a financial intrinsic sale for the most part. Two is acquisition entrepreneur, also a, typically a financial intrinsic uh, sale. And then three is an ESOP, again, fi intrinsic financial sale. And I'm saying that because the valuation methodology is primarily based on the discounted cash flow, which is based on the risk of the, ca the risk of the cash flow, which is what we've been hammering through over these mini series for many uh, many months now. That leads us to then principal or not principal uh, exit option number four, and that is private equity. And this can both be strategic and financial as far as like how the valuation is is determined. But if you can justify the valuation of your company based on the risk of the cash flow, I would say that should be your backstop, even with private equity, because they're in the business of understanding assets, cash flow, and risk. So if you know if you know your shit, you'll be able to go head to head with these people, saying here's exactly what we want and why and how all this works. And you should be able to justify that and they'll probably respect you for it. There's a lot of strategic reasons a private equity firm might want to pay a premium if you're what's called the platform. And again, we're going to be diving a lot of this stuff uh, later, but a platform meaning that it's going to be the first company you're going to bolt on other companies to that platform. The platform company might get a lot more money. It's the big thing with private equity is understanding how long have the general partners been doing this? Where do they get their money? What's their hold period of the fund? And then making sure that you know how many times they've done this. Like, are you in fund one or are you in fund 15? And how long are, is the timeline to they have to sell all of the companies? Because if, if they have to sell them all next year and they're buying you right now, there's certain implications for your company. You know, a lot of private equity firms, they want to make, make sure that you're rolling some equities so that you're going to get paid out a certain amount of money and they're going to want you to reinvest back in I mean, I, there was one gentleman on the uh, on the podcast, and he was saying that you know he rolled up. I think it was like hundred companies he'd bought, and he said he would never buy a company where the owner would want to roll less than twenty five percent. So call it twenty five to forty nine percent. And the private equity's job, their their goal is to get a rate of return. So they buy companies, they grow them by increasing the EBITDA, increasing the multiple, and paying down debt and selling it with a certain period of time. Brent B. Shore is going to be on the show to talk about how his structure is different and a lot of different flavors that are available out there nowadays. And what's another interesting uh, uh, category inside of private equity, Paul Moffat's going to be back on the show and he's from a family office. So family offices are essentially just really, really, really rich people that they have a bunch of people managing their money that are just not in ETFs and Schwab, in a Schwab account. They say, I want to go invest in private equity and they can choose to go give a private equity firm some money. So the private equity firm goes and buys the companies and manages them, or they can choose, the family office could choose to go buy the companies directly and have people manage it. A couple of different ways. And I think it's important to know, and we'll be comparing those two with uh, Brent B. Shore and Paul Moffat and kind of other uh, options as far as like, what does that mean to you as far as your legacy? What are they planning on doing with the employees? You know, a lot of family offices don't make you roll a bunch of money because they don't want you to have the upside. So it's a lot of succession planning, I think, is where they just want you, they're helping you get out and monetize your company and get out of your job. So and we've talked a lot about PE firms in, in the years where they've raised like one and a half or $2 trillion. It's already committed capital. So this money has to be spent. They're, they're, they're charging the investors 2% on their money and they get usually a percentage of the upside, two and 20, so 20% of the upside. They have to spend the money and go buy companies. 
So uh, you're seeing these valuations still stay pretty high because the money's already committed, regardless of what's going on in the public markets. So kind of just fascinating. The private equity firms have been going down market to try and buy smaller companies because there's not a lot of good companies to buy in the middle to upper market. So you're watching private equity go down. You're watching smaller PE firms pop up that have raised $40 million instead of the typical like larger ones that are a couple hundred million. If you've seen one private equity firm, you've seen one. There's like 8,000 private equity backed companies in the US and there's only 3,900 some public companies. So it's a huge industry. It's in the business of buying companies to grow them and sell them at some point. It's just better to understand this because if you understand this, this uh, sector, you can compare and contrast the different people you're probably getting phone calls and emails from. And then that leads us to the fifth exit option, which is strategic buyers. And I, I like to joke around about this one because most strategic buyers these days are like, there's a good chance they're backed by private equity because they could be the platform company, but then there's someone that actually is behind them, which is the private equity firm. The thing is, is strategic buyers, everybody listening in knows exactly what they are for the most part. It's the people that if you, it's a short list, if you could think about the people that should buy your company for the strategic reasons, that's exactly what we're talking about. Large competitors, it could be people that want to get into the geographic market that you're in, synergies where they don't, you know, you can cross sell the, the different products and ser uh, services, supply chain, you know, vertical integration. There's a lot of the, you know, Am uh, Amazon FBA account uh, companies that, you know, they're now getting into manufacturing. Manufacturing is now getting in into Amazon. So you're just watching the vertical integration that makes the overall entity and cash flow less risky and therefore a higher valuation. A lot of strategic buyers, and I didn't mention this on private equity too, but you know, we could talk about this for days and we're not going to, but that's why we're gonna have all these other episodes. But the role, like well, how each of the private equity and strategic buyers impact your role depends. You know, strategic buyers, that's who we sold to. And it's look at the redundancies and figure out who who's needed and then the, the strategic buyer has a specific reason they're going to buy your company. And I suggest you go listen to uh, uh, my interview with Ted, again, Ted Schluter, where we were talking about strategic buyers and kind of the purpose of what they're looking at. And Tommy Mel will be talking about that as well. What they want to do with the business will impact your role. And if you don't figure out what they want and what the new org chart is going to look like based on them buying you, you just don't know. And it's not your company anymore. So I would highly recommend getting as deep as you can to figuring out what do they want with your company and why but you have a higher probability of getting all your cash up front. There's a lot, there's potential earnouts and stuff like that. But if you think about the difference between the internal and strategic, which I think a lot of people think are the only two options, it's either take your money over time, long, dramatic, conflict-ridden with partners and family, or gut the company and sell to a strategic buyer and regret it. I'm being dramatic here to show you the bookends of you know the spectrum, but that's what people think. But there's an infinite amount of ways to structure your ownership sale and how there's a lot of different ways to handle your role. It all depends on what you want. And that kind of leads us into, you know, things to consider as we're wrapping up here. What do you want? And I mean, I, I hate to always go back to this, but like, what, what do you actually want? What do you want from your business and why? What do you want from your role over, over time? And what do you want from your ownership? You know, what's your timing? What's the bogey that you want for the valuation and how do you, how does that impact your legacy or culture, employees and, and what you want? And then that's all in principle one. And then principle two is your financial targets. Or what do you want from the it. business and why? So I have a question because I, I find myself asking this question all the time. So like 
I mean, once a week, every week for the last couple of years, I hear you say, what do you want from the business and why? But how specific on that question do you recommend like a business owner get with that? Like what, you know, do you know what I'm asking? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, as specific as people can is my recommendation because, you know, if it's like, I really like, I really like the services I'm building out and I, but I want to monetize this and I want to make sure that my services and that the impact that I'm having in this industry live on without me. Okay. There's a certain set of things that happen with that, or I love being the leader. I don't want to be the CEO anymore. I don't want to deal with all the operational BS. I don't want to deal with all my headaches, but I want to do sales or I want to be an engineer, but I, and I still love this company. I just don't want that. It's like, just really writing down like what brings you joy? What do you enjoy about your job? What do you enjoy about the business? What don't you enjoy about it? Putting it down because at any point, if someone's going to buy your company, put all this stuff in the purchase agreement and the, the employment contracts and the operating agreement, if you're part of it, like the more intentional you are because you understand what you want, the more chance, the more, the higher the probabilities you're going to get it because you put it into the agreements or the negotiations. And I think Scott, it's just, different for everybody. And unless you know it, it, you're not going to have an idea of how you're going to negotiate it. Like I'm just making something up, but someone said like, like if someone was going to talk about shutting down a division or, you know, moving the location or whatever it is, if you don't know that that's important to you and all of a sudden you say, no, I don't want to do that. And then the price goes from 10 million to 7 million. I don't know. How does it impact you? You know, can you still be financially free? Do you, can you, is that still viable? It's just, the people don't understand the trade-offs and the financial implications of the trade-offs because they haven't determined what's important to them and how that impacts their financials. And like, I just like principle one a lot. So another thing, and maybe this is just for the listeners, or maybe you want to elaborate on it too, is uh, we had an episode with Rob Dubay about 10-year thinking. And I think what, one thing that I, I think about a lot is like if you put what do you want from your business and why, as like a short-term way of thinking. And then you use Rob Dubay's 10-year thinking. I think Mm. that's a good like approach to, you know, not feeling left with regret after you sell or whatnot. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, I hear what you're saying. And I think doing, you know, what do you want from the business? Why short-term, but also like for me, I've got a 10-year plan for, you know, like when Rob and I were talking about it on that episode and it's not specifics. Like, it's like, I want the freedom of time, the freedom of relationships, freedom of purpose. And it's a lot of this, uh, a lot of these concepts from Dan Sullivan's new book, who, not how. And, but it's not like, like, I'm not like so granular that I'm going to be, you know, stressed out if I don't hit it, because it's more about having choices in the future. And like, what brings you joy? What brings me joy is doing podcasts, speaking, hang, you know, like watching other people succeed. It's not doing pivot tables. I got, I got a team for that. And so my, my point is, is like in your role, what do you want? You know, the freedoms that you want and then using that as a filter. So if someone has an offer in any of these different options, your partner wants to buy you out, you get an out of the blue offer, you know, you get, so you go to an ESOP conference or webinar and you're going, what does this mean to me? You look down and say, well, this is what I like. Great. And then you look over to the right and say, okay, now the financial targets, what does this financially mean to me? I think the biggest challenge that a lot of people have is they don't have that clarity that says, I have two options right now. One is for 10 million, one is for 8 million. And this is how both of those impact my role now and in the future, the company now and in the future, the culture now and into the future. And says, okay, well, like now I've got a decision-making framework. And 
how important are those things are to sacrifice potentially a couple million bucks? I don't know. Like, do you need the couple million or not? Or like, if you're totally wealthy outside the business and this is way above your financial freedom number, maybe say, heck with it. That's, that's the way, you know, doing an ESAP instead of a third party sale is the way of accomplishing my legacy, my philanthropy, whatever. Or you don't have the options and you have to sell to a strategic because you need the money. You don't have the time, but at least you know that, Hey, I'm going to be sacrificing these things and I don't have a choice, but I like, I'm okay with it. I've, I've come to come to peace with that versus doing it, regretting it years later and having a podcast eight years later like me. <laughs> so, so I think as we're, as we're wrapping up here, I just wanted to set the, uh, set the stage for these other pod or other podcast interviews, because this stuff is complicated, but it doesn't have to be. And as long as we have a framework of like thinking about these options and understanding how it impacts the value of the asset, the deal structure, when and how you monetize it, and your role pre, pre, during, and post closing, and depending on what's important to you, you can get straight to the questions that you need answers to. So that way you don't have to drag out for years of like, hey, maybe, hey, maybe someday I want to sell, you know, the rolling five year exit plan. No one even knows what that is when they say, I want to sell in five years. What do you mean by that? They kind of just look at me and like, but yeah, because they don't know all the options. They don't know the impact of their options. So hopefully this is a, a good, uh, um, good foundation for the next few interviews. I wanted to mention an announcement. We have a physical in-person boot camp coming up, which I'm super pumped about. First one in almost three years. It's at Bethel University in Minnesota. It is on November 2nd and 3rd, and it's five grand for the first ticket and half off the tickets after that. We max out at uh, 20 participants and uh, super excited where this principle that we just talked about, this exit options, I think is like over like a half a day. So we're whiteboarding about private equity. We're whiteboarding about ESOPs. We're having a lot of... Uh, conversations and exercises to help people understand truly what it means and using the two case studies as a way to show relativity of how different people and different companies and sizes are able to get what they want based on the actions that they're taking. So very excited for it. And again, I'm looking forward to the next handful of interviews. And I think that is about it. Unless I think Scott's got one more question. (laughs) I have one more question for you. What does the word intentional mean to you? Figure out what do you want long-term? What's important to you? And then build a plan to get it and take deliberate and purposeful action every day to be closer towards that goal that you have. And because you're intentional, you have an idea of how the this, how the, inf- the decisions you have to make today are going to impact that long-term plan, whether it's you're getting closer or further away because you've got a framework and a filter to say, okay, well, this the situation in front of me is going to help get me closer because I'm intentional. I know what I want and why, and I'm taking action towards it. I've always been excited to ask you that question. <laughs> <laughs> and we have done it. So I think everybody has uh, probably heard enough of me for now. Th- thank you so much, Scott, for uh, sitting there so I don't have to talk to myself and keep me in the guardrails a little bit. And uh, everybody, make sure to check out the boot camp again and if uh, to t- uh, check out the next few episodes that are going to be coming over the next few weeks.